This is literally everything, 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 everything. If you're like me, you have a pile of books older than your grandma's mom and taller than the Empire State Building just begging to be read. To top it off, you probably add several books to said pile every week, yet somehow find yourself in a reading slump with nothing to read. Uh Uh-huh, I see you. In an attempt to tackle my never-ending pile of books, I decided to start a podcast with hopes of making some sort of dent in said pile, and maybe help inspire your next read. I'm Odell. Welcome to Just Read It Already. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you're having an awesome day. I have four reviews for you today. I'll be chatting about Lauren Chamberlain's Who We Are Now, TJ Clune's Under the Whispering Door, Sally Hepworth's The Soulmate, and Amy Ingalls' I Did It For You. But before I jump in, let's take a look at some of this week's new releases. We have quite a few this week. First on my list is The Paris Agent by Kelly Rimmer. A family's innocent search for answers brings a long-forgotten 25-year-old mystery to light in this riveting new novel from the best-selling author of The Things We Cannot Say. Next is All the Demons Are Here by Jake Tapper. Jake Tapper's heart-pounding new thriller takes us back to the 1970s with two unforgettable characters encountering many of the real-life figures and events that defined one of the wildest and most dangerous decades in American history. Then we have An Evil Heart by Linda Castillo. Chief of Police Kate Burkholder investigates the brutal death of a young Amish man. Then we have Alchemy of a Blackbird by Claire McMillan a mystical historical novel based on the true story of the 20th century painters and occultists Remedios Varro and Lenora Carrington, each beginning as the muse of a famous lover and then breaking away to become an icon in her own right through a powerful friendship that springs from their connection to the tarot. Next is Nothing Special by Nicole Flattery, a wildly original coming-of-age novel about a teenage girl working at Andy Warhol's factory in 1960s New York. That sounds interesting. Then we have The Guest Room by Tasha Silva. Tess has a bad habit. She can't stop snooping through her guest's belongings. Then we have The Air Raid Book Club by Annie Lyons. A heartwarming story of found family, love, and making connections through books set against the bombings of London during World War II. Then we have Queen of Exiles by Vanessa Riley. This is a novel based on the life of an extraordinary black woman from history, Haiti's Queen Marie-Louise Coy David, who escaped a coup in Haiti to set up her own royal court in Italy during the Regency era, where she became a popular member of royal European society. Then we have One Summer in Savannah by Tara Shelton Harris. A compelling debut that glows with bittersweet heart and touching emotion, deeply interrogating questions of family, redemption, and unconditional love in the sweltering summer heat of Savannah, as two people discover what it means to truly forgive. Then we have Say Yes to the Princess by Cherise Michaels. A princess in exile searches for her lost brother and falls for the devastatingly charming scoundrel sent to thwart her. Next is Thicker Than Water by Megan Collins. Two sisters-in-law find themselves at painful odds when the man who connects them, the brother of one, the husband of the other, is accused of a brutal crime in this twisty thriller. 
Then we have The Absolutes by Molly Dektar, a moving, suspenseful, beautifully atmospheric novel about a young woman's affair with an Italian aristocrat that leaves her spiraling in the face of love, danger, and obsession. Next is The Clearing by Simone Toyne. Lead forensic expert Lofton Reese is back, this time investigating a series of missing women in a small town near the Forest of Dean, where she uncovers a dark and sinister plot, decades in the making. And we have With a Kiss We Die by L.R. Dorn. Two college lovers suspected of a brutal double homicide enlist a podcasting crime journalist to proclaim their innocence in the psychologically riveting and compulsively readable novel of love, lies, and murder. Then we have Windfall by Wendy Corsi Staub, or Staub, S-T-A-U-B. I know she's a big author. I should know her name. Sorry. Three friends' lives terrifyingly unravel when they win a billion-dollar lottery jackpot, and one goes missing. That sounds interesting. Next is Curse of Saints by Kate Dramas. A spy master to the queen, Aya's blood oath ensures she protects those she fights alongside, including Will, the queen's enforcer and Aya's bitter rival. When rumors of dark magic rise in a nearby kingdom, both are sent to investigate. But when Aya's power acts beyond her god's given affinity, she risks being turned into a weapon in a war she doesn't know how to win. Next is Wednesdays at One by Sandra A. Miller. This debut novel by award-winning author Sandra A. Miller explores how long-buried secrets have the power to shatter a seemingly perfect life. That's confusing to me. Debut novel, but she's award-winning. Maybe she had short stories or something. Or she won an award in kindergarten. Who knows? Anyway, next is Dead of Winter by Darcy Coates. This is a remote cabin in the snowy wilderness thriller that will teach you to trust no one. There are eight strangers, one killer, nowhere left to run. Definitely interested in that one. Then we have Forget Me Not by Julie Soto. An ambitious wedding planner must work with her grumpy florist ex, whose heart she broke on the most high-profile wedding of her career. Then we have Good Fortune by C.K. Chow. A whip-smart and charming debut novel that brilliantly reimagines pride and prejudice set in contemporary Chinatown, exploring contemporary issues of class divides, family ties, cultural identity, and the pleasures and frustrations that come with falling in love. Then we have It Happened One Fight by Maureen Lee Lanker, a swoony romantic comedy set in the world of 1930s film. Next is Must Love Flowers by Debbie Maycomer. Two women at different stages of life find themselves on a journey of renewal after undergoing hardships in this uplifting novel. Then we have The St. Ambrose School for Girls by Jessica Ward. Heathers meets the secret history in this thrilling coming-of-age novel set in a boarding school where the secrets are devastating and deadly. You had me at Heathers. Definitely going to check that one out. And last on my list, The Summer of Songbirds by Christy Woodson Harvey. Four women come together to save the summer camp that changed their lives and rediscover themselves in the process in this moving new novel. This week, I received arcs of And Then She Fell by Alicia Elliott and The Curse of Penrith Hall by Jess Armstrong, courtesy of the publishers via NetGalley in exchange for an honest review. I also snagged ebooks of Sometimes I Lie by Alice Feeney, One of the Girls by Lucy Clark, Cassandra in Reverse by Holly Smale, and The Language of Love and Loss by Bart Yates. All right. How about we take a look at my thoughts on some of my recent reads? I'll kick things off with a review of the wonderful and thought-provoking Who We Are Now by Lauren Chamberlain. 
I received a copy of this book courtesy of the publishers through NetGalley in exchange for an honest review. The book is published by Dutton and releases on August 8, 2023. The synopsis reads, It's 2006, and Rachel, Clarissa, Dev, and Nate are best friends, seniors on the eve of their college graduation. Their whole lives are before them, at once full of promise and anxiety. Bound to one another as they are, they imagine their closeness will last forever, but things change as they take their first steps away from one another and into adulthood. Each year is told from one character's point of view, and in that way, we stride swiftly through their lives. These four friends feel their 20s and 30s flying by, and suddenly small moments fast become regrets or unexpected boons, decisions they'll spend years wishing they could undo, and choices that come to define them. As the foursome endure professional setbacks, deep loss, and creative success, fortunes shift and friendships strain, and it will take a tragic turn of events to bring them together again. Who We Are Now is a poignant story of epic friendship that jumps boldly through the years, moving at the same unforgiving pace as does that precious, confusing time between college and real life. This novel is perfect for readers who adore tales of friendship, explorations of the second coming of age moment that arrives in our 30s, and fans of Meg Wolitzer's The Interestings or Dolly Allerton's Ghosts. Every once in a while, a book comes around that really hits me in the heart and makes me stand up and pay attention. So far this year, I've had it happen four times. First with Hello Beautiful by Anne Napolitano, then with Adelaide by Genevieve Wheeler, and again with The Collected Regrets of Clover by Mickey Brannon, and now this book. While Hello Beautiful made me think about mental health and how I approach my own, Adelaide made me reflect on how I've let myself be used and the missteps I took in past relationships. The Collected Regrets of Clover had me reflecting on the little things in life that I really should cherish more. And then Who We Are Now came along and made me want to hug the friends I still hold dear and reconnect with those I've lost touch with. Growing up gay in conservative rural Idaho, I didn't have many close friends in high school. There were people I hung out with on occasion, but I never had those super close meaningful friendships like I saw on TV or on all the John Hughes movies that I was obsessed with. It wasn't until I got to Oregon State University that I really found my people. I showed up alone, horribly shy and scared, but also excited at the possibilities. And then three years later, I left feeling confident, loved, and most importantly, that not only did I matter, but there were people in this world who would accept me exactly the way I am. The friendships and the memories I made while there are still some of my most cherished. These people were my family, and that's exactly how our main characters, Rachel, Dev, Nate, and Clarissa, felt about one another in this book. The book begins right as the four best friends and roommates are about to graduate college and start their lives in the real world. At the top of the book, Rachel and Nate are headed to New York City. Rachel has dreams of working in publishing and eventually being a published author, while Nate chases the big bucks. He has a job at Layman's working in finance. Clarissa is staying in the Chicago area as she pursues a career in stand-up comedy. She hopes to land a job at Second City and eventually get a gig on SNL. Dev isn't sure what his future holds, and a last-minute decision has him moving to New York as well. All of this plays out in the first chapter of the book, and then after that, each chapter is told from the perspective of one of the four friends, and each of those chapters spans a year in their life. The friends grow, they hit walls, They achieve successes and endure blows to their egos. They meet new friends and new loves, and despite their best efforts, they begin to drift apart as life takes them in different directions, and ultimately leads one of them into unexpected tragedy. I will admit that it took me a while to settle into this one. 
It wasn't until about two thirds of the way into the book that I felt like I really settled in and had a good handle on the four characters and where they were headed. Once I hit that point though, I was fully invested and felt as though I was a part of this friend group. I felt their excitement for all of their successes. I felt their frustrations with one another when one of them acted like an ass. I especially felt their loss when tragedy struck. Like the friend group, I felt a part of me had been ripped away. I desperately wanted to pick up the pieces and glue them back together, but that just wasn't possible. When I finished the book, I lay on my sofa reflecting on the friendships that I had in college, one of them in particular. There was this one woman I was super close with in college. We were inseparable our last year of school, and then I moved to Texas and she left for grad school. She eventually got married. We drifted apart a bit. We reconnected a few years later, but differing political affiliations in a volatile political climate put a wedge between us. Even after I moved back to Oregon, we never really saw one another much. We always meant to reconnect, or at least so we said, but I think we both knew it would be incredibly awkward, so we never really put in a whole lot of effort into making that happen. Then one day, I found out that she had died suddenly, and it devastated me. I couldn't help but feel deep regret that I hadn't tried a little harder to reconnect with her. I think I always thought in the back of my mind that someday we would. Someday we'd make it happen. But now, someday is impossible. I also found myself reflecting on all of the wonderful times I had in college with the various groups of crazy, loving, hilarious, and loyal individuals that I was lucky enough to call my friends. I was involved in various extracurricular activities, so I had several friend groups. Reading this book made me want to contact some that I haven't seen in years, but then it made me wonder how different it might be now. I wonder if their memories are as good as mine. Despite being a part of several friend groups, I had a smaller core group I'm still super close with. The final scene in the book definitely took me back to my final year at college and the little house I spent so much time in with some of my closest friends. Just like the friends in the book had so many memories wrapped up in the walls of 1208 Maple, there's a house on the corner of a street in Corvallis, Oregon that holds a ton of memories for me. I think maybe it's time to go revisit the campus again. It's been too long. As you can tell, this book cracked something open in me. While slow to start, it eventually had me fully invested in the characters and the direction their lives took. I think I would have liked a little more of their time together in college. We get that they were close when the book begins, we just don't really get why. And then suddenly they all go their separate ways. I think for me, had I gotten a bit more of their final few weeks of school and really had a more solid understanding of what made the group tick, I would have been more emotionally invested in their friendship from the start. That said, I ended up really loving the book and it's one I want a physical copy of to add to my shelves. I personally rated it four and a half stars only because the first two thirds of the book was a little slow for me, but I rounded it up and gave it five out of five on Goodreads. Next, I'll share my thoughts on TJ Clune's Under the Whispering Door. This book was first published by Tor on September 21st, 2021, and was a nominee for Best Fantasy in the Goodreads Choice Awards that same year. The synopsis reads, When a reaper comes to collect Wallace from his own funeral, Wallace begins to suspect he might be dead. And when Hugo, the owner of a peculiar tea shop, promises to help him cross over, Wallace decides he's definitely dead. But even in death, he's not ready to abandon the life he barely lived. So when Wallace is given one week to cross over, he sets about living a lifetime in seven days. Hilarious, haunting, and kind, Under the Whispering Door is an uplifting story about a life spent at the office and a death spent building a home. I will admit I was late to the TJ Clune party, but hey, better late than never, right? 
Granted, this is only the second book I've read by him, but I love what I've read thus far. His books target adults, but also have a sort of whimsy that takes me back to my days of reading Roald Dahl when I was a kid. While The House in the Cerulean Sea dealt with outcasts, this book deals with death and grief, and like the previous book I mentioned, both deal with the idea of chosen family. In this story, Wallace, our main character, was once a high-powered attorney, a bit of a workaholic and quite the asshole. After suffering a heart attack, Wallace finds himself sitting in a church pew dressed in sweats and a t-shirt, an awful thing for a man who was always dressed to the nines. I mean, this is basically his ghost outfit forever. He soon realizes that he is at his own funeral, and the only ones in attendance are his law firm partners, his ex-wife, and a young Asian woman he doesn't recognize. The young woman turns out to be a reaper, and after the funeral, whisks him away to a peculiar house in a small town that also serves as a tea shop. It's there that Wallace meets Hugo, the proprietor of the tea shop, who also works as a ferryman, someone who helps the souls of the dead cross over. Hugo's job is to help the soul understand what's happened. Once they've made peace with the fact that they're dead, he will usher them through a door in the ceiling on the top floor of the home that will carry them through to their next life. Problem is, Wallace isn't quite ready to go through the door, so he hangs out for a while. He meets Hugo's grandfather, Louis, and Hugo's childhood dog, Apollo, who were also ghosts who have not yet crossed over. As days go by, Wallace reconciles with his future and atones for his assholish ways when he was alive. He also finds a loving family and develops a beautiful relationship with Hugo, all things he didn't have in life and things he must leave behind when it's time to cross over. As one would expect from a Clune book, the characters are fully realized and complex. Wallace shows the most growth across the novel, but all the supporting characters are well-rounded as well. We get to know what led Hugo to become a ferryman. We also find out what led May to become a reaper. We learn about Nelson's past and why he's hung around with his grandson rather than passing through the door. We also have a few minor players like an alleged medium who holds seances at the tea shop hoping to impress her YouTube followers, the ghost of a young man who refused to cross the door and is wandering around in his lonely ways outside the shop and in the nearby town, and we even meet the manager. This is someone who's almost like God, though their true identity isn't 100% divulged, which I kind of liked. What I especially liked about the book is that we all have those moments where we wonder what exactly happens when we die. And depending on your religion, or lack thereof, your thoughts may vary. I really enjoyed the way the author portrayed the afterlife in this book. It's not tied to a specific religion or belief, but... I feel like everyone could probably find a little bit of what they believe in this book. The story really grabbed me and tugged at my heartstrings quite a bit. I finished it a day or two after traveling to Idaho to visit my parents for a few days. It was a lovely visit and it reminded me I need to spend more time with them because they're both in their 70s now and won't be here forever. That was still on my mind when I finished this book, so when I read the last few chapters, I was a weepy mess. The thing is, while the book deals with topics of grief and loss and living life to the fullest, it ends in a bittersweet way. You're sad for the loss, but so happy for the time you got and the beauty and wonder of what lies beyond. This book was beautifully written and highly imaginative. It sucked me in and left me feeling every emotion. Like life, I didn't want it to end. I rated it five stars. All right, it's time for a quick break.
I started the episode with a couple of thought-provoking and maybe emotional books, so we'll end with a couple of mysteries. I'll start with Sally Hepworth's The Soulmate. This book was first published by St. Martin's Press on April 4th, 2023. The synopsis reads, There's a cottage on a cliff, Gabe and Pippa's dream home in a sleepy coastal town. But their perfect house hides something sinister. The tall cliffs have become a popular spot for people to end their lives. Night after night, Gabe comes to their rescue, literally talking them off the edge. Until he doesn't. When Pippa discovers Gabe knew the victim, the questions spiral. Did the victim jump? Was she pushed? And would Gabe, the love of Pippa's life, her soulmate, lie? As the perfect facade of their marriage begins to crack, the deepest and darkest secrets begin to unravel. I pre-ordered this book based solely on the description. It sounded juicy and dangerous, and I was all in. It took several weeks before I could finally read the book, and while I enjoyed it, I wasn't as blown away by it as others seem to have been. It's not that the book is bad. It's really well written, has some nice twists to it. It just wasn't as tense as I wanted it to be. I went into it hoping for a white-knuckle thriller, but it's actually more of a slow-burn mystery. The book begins with Pippa and Gabe and their two daughters having dinner when Pippa notices a woman standing outside their house near the cliff. This is a common occurrence. Several people have committed suicide here, and since moving into their home a few months ago, Gabe has managed to talk several people off the literal edge. He's been so good at it, the local paper did a cover story on him for his heroic deeds. On this particular evening, Gabe goes out to speak with a woman, as he typically does, but she ends up falling off the cliff. Gabe claims that she had stated her husband was having an affair and she couldn't handle it anymore, and he was unable to convince her to not jump. But Pippa was watching from the window, and she noticed that some of what Gabe tells the police doesn't match what she saw. The positioning of Gabe's hands made it appear to Pippa that he may have shoved the woman rather than tried to grab her. But that can't be. Gabe's a great guy. Everyone loves him. He wouldn't hurt a fly, would he? As the book progresses, we find out who the woman is and the connection she had to Gabe and Pippa. The book alternates between Pippa and the dead woman's points of view, which is interesting because while Pippa is alive and well... The other woman is not, and we're hearing her side of things from beyond the grave, which was kind of weird for me. There were several points while reading that I definitely thought Gabe was guilty, but then something would happen to make me think otherwise, or that maybe he did it to protect his family, but then from what? Now, you all know I love an unreliable narrator, and in this book, neither Gabe nor Pippa are reliable. Both had fucked up in their lives, they had things to hide, and if Gabe really killed this woman, it could be a major thorn in both of their sides. As I mentioned earlier, there were some nice twists along the way, but none that really shocked or surprised me. There was no gasping on my end, nothing that made me want to profess my love for the book across Portland. I liked it well enough, but it didn't blow me away. I'd likely recommend it to someone who prefers their thrillers more low-key than full-on gasp-inducing. I ended up giving this one three and a quarter stars and rounded it to three on Goodreads. And we will close out with my thoughts on Amy Ingalls' I Did It For You. Now, for the record, I also received an advanced reader's copy of this book, courtesy of the publisher through NetGalley, in exchange for an honest review. 
I Did It For You will publish on July 25th, 2023 by Dutton. The synopsis reads, It's been 14 years since Greer Dunning's older sister, Eliza, was murdered, and Greer's family has never been the same. And now there's been a similar killing in Greer's small Kansas hometown, Ludlow, after the execution of the convicted killer. A copycat, according to the authorities, but Greer is convinced there's more to the story, that Eliza's murderer had help all those years ago. So Greer returns to Ludlow after more than a decade away, desperate to find answers to the questions that have haunted her for years. Her drive to uncover the truth pushes her to form a bond with the unlikeliest of allies. At once a riveting mystery and a deep exploration of guilt, loss, and the ways in which a violent murder transforms both the family of the victim and the family of the killer, I Did It For You will keep readers captivated through the very last page. I think I mentioned in an earlier episode that until recently, a friend and I had a weekly true crime podcast. We did it for almost three years and it was pretty successful, but then it ended up really wearing on us. Reading about murders and disappearances and the effects it had on the families really took a toll on our mental health. And while I'm happy to be away from true crime, I love reading about fictional crime. And as soon as I read the synopsis for this one on NetGalley, I knew I wanted to give it a shot. And while I liked the book, I didn't love it. Mostly because I felt the revelation at the end was a little meh. When we hear the words true crime, we tend to think of serial killers, or at least that's where my mind goes. I think maybe it's just that I am an 80s kid raised on threats of being kidnapped and ending up on a milk carton and or being murdered by a serial killer. What I learned while doing the podcast is that statistically we're more likely to be murdered by someone we know than by a stranger. Yeah, let that sink in. Our next most likely murderer would be a stranger who wasn't out simply to kill us for fun, but more likely because of an altercation or a robbery or in connection with some other crime. All that to say, I really liked how the plot in this book was contained to a single crime that rocked a small Kansas town. Police caught the guy who did it. In fact, he even confessed to doing it. He was sentenced and eventually executed, so when two more teenagers are murdered in the same way 14 years later... Greer Dunning returns home to find out what's going on. Her sister, Eliza, was one of the victims 14 years earlier, and Greer has always felt as though there was more to the story. She's had this nagging feeling that the killer wasn't working alone, so she leaves her job as a school counselor in Ohio and returns home to poke around. Greer has a difficult relationship with her parents. After Eliza's death, they all grew apart and things are still strained between them. Upon returning home, she immediately reconnects with her childhood BFFs, Ryan and Cassie, and it's not long before she also connects with Dean Matthews, the brother of Roy Matthews, who was convicted of murdering her sister and her sister's boyfriend all those years ago. Greer figures Dean as her only hope in figuring out what was going on with Roy right before he murdered her sister. This information could help her figure out who Roy may have been working with. The author does a great job of creating the small-town vibe. I also really like the characters of Greer and the complex relationship she had not only with her family, but also with several people from her past, including her friends Cassie and Ryan. The book is a good read. It unravels much like a classic true crime case, but it lost me toward the end when we find out how the murders were connected and why they occurred. It was way too much of a stretch for me to fully get behind. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. In fact, I read the last two to three chapters a couple of times just to make sure I hadn't missed something. It just, it didn't click with me. 
I ended up giving this one three stars on Goodreads. Before I sign off, I want to invite you to come follow the show on Instagram. The handle is at JustReadItAlreadyPod. I record these episodes about a month before they drop just to give myself some wiggle room, but my Instagram is always more current. Come check out what I'm reading, what I've just finished, new book mail, and even a giveaway here and there. I'd also like to ask that you take a minute to rate and follow the podcast on whatever app you're listening on. And if you're a movie lover, check out a couple of other podcasts in the family. I also co-host a totally 80s, 90s podcast titled Back Where We Belong with my friend Aaron. We chat about major events and books and movies and music from the 80s and 90s. And then Aaron and her friend Conrad host Here's Drinking With You Kid, where they watch and discuss AFI's top 100 movies. They also have a special cocktail that they drink that goes along with the movie that they watch. It's a lot of fun. Please join me next week when I share my thoughts on Stephen Rowley's The Celebrants, Will Dean's The Last One, Nicholas DiDamasio's The Gay Best Friend, and the book everyone is talking about, it seems, Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. Have a great week. Have a great week.